a choice right now, right now, between fear and love. It's just a rock. Out of the dark night of ignorance and into the shining light of truth. Expounding reality. A population of citizens capable of critical thinking. We don't see things as they are, we see them as we are. There's a, a level of reality where everything dissolves into an ocean of energy. We empower our experience by insisting on our authenticity. That's very profound. Very Expanding reality. Welcome to Expanding Reality. I am your host, Brandon Thomas. This week, we've got a very special guest for you guys. Uh, he is an author, an international UFO researcher, lecturer, and broadcaster. His books have been published in six different languages around the world. He is a former director of investigations for the British UFO Research Association and the Yorkshire UFO Society, and a former MUFON representative for England. He is also the founder of Flying Disc Press, which I will link to in the show notes for you guys to find. He's written a ton of great books. Uh, a couple include Without Consent, the Roswell Alien Autopsy film, and his new book that we're going to talk about today, uh, Introducing UFOs, is absolutely phenomenal. You guys should totally get it. Check this thing out. Uh, so on this episode, we will be taking a walk down the path of high strangeness with the great and powerful Mr. Philip Mantle. Philip, how are you doing this evening? Uh, good evening, Brandon. Nice to speak to you. Yes, sir. It's going to be great. Uh, so you are over there in the UK. How's the uh, how's that finding you there? Well, we're all in lockdown, which is not not too bad, I think, because we've had snow and then heavy rain, and now it's been down below freezing. So I think we're in the best place, nice and warm in front of the fire. Yeah, you might as well be locked down when it's bad weather outside. You know, we're uncomfortable. <laughs> Absolutely. Yes, sir. Well, man, I'm, I'm really excited to talk to you about your book, uh, your new book, actually. I want to talk to you about a couple of other things as well, but introducing UFOs. So what, what brought that about? What, uh, what made you want to write that? Well, yeah, I mean, this, this is a project that's been sat on the back burner for a number of years. Um, it was one of those projects I always said, I'll finish that next year. Um, I'll, I'll finish that. And of course, <laughs> that never happened for it. It goes back quite a long way. I mean, I've, I've lectured in lots of places, Brandon, but I also lectured in a number of high schools to students. And I, I, I found with a lot of them, they, they asked some really great questions, probably better than an adult audience. And um, <clears throat> one of the things they asked me uh, was, could I recommend a, a book for them? And yes, there was lots of books out there, but I, you know, hand on heart, I couldn't honestly say, here's a book that's been written with your age group in mind. So that's where the idea germinated. And I also went back in my mind to, to when I was at high school, which is when my interest in the paranormal and UFOs really expanded. I, how they do things in the USA. But when we have the, the summer break, we have six weeks holidays. When we went back to high school, our teacher was one of those who said, you know, pointed to you in the class, said, what did you do during the holidays? Hey, somebody would stand up and say, yeah, no, we went on holiday to Spain. Somebody said, oh, I went horse riding. What about you, Philip? Oh, I attended the spiritualist church. <laughs> you know, so... It was that age group when I, when I also started to get interested in the UFO subject. 
And I could only find one book on it, um, but it was written for an adult audience. So we jumped forward in time. I think, wouldn't it be nice to have a, a publication that's just for that particular audience? Uh, and that's how it all began. So uh, last year, when we first went into the, 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 the pandemic March time, I thought, right, there's a couple of things I, I really do need to get done this year. And that was that was the first one on my list. I've got no more excuses, Brandon. You right. Know? Yeah. But, um, parts of it were already written. And um, I, I still have an old fashioned filing cabinet sat right next to me. And there is a, a, a cardboard f- uh, folder in there. And it says on the top of it, introducing UFOs. And every time I opened the that jumped out and hit me in the face, even though I wasn't looking for it. Right. So with a colleague of mine by the name of Ronald Kinsella, uh, Ronald's an author in his own right, but he's also an artist. Yeah. He did some great artwork for the book. It looks incredible, especially as Kim Kenneth Arnold depiction. That was brilliant. It's beautiful. Yeah. So I wanted some unique artwork to go with it. I've, I've been a magazine editor in the past as well. So I've, I've got you know, lots of artwork I can call upon. But I, I just liked Ronnie's style of artwork, and I thought it would go great for a for a high school audience. So that was it. That's how it all began, and, and um, recently published Introducing UFOs. Well, the book looks great, and you guys make sure to pick up a copy. Uh, it, it's beautifully done, and it goes through everything. It's a real great breakdown on especially all the main cases, your Kenneth Arnold sighting uh, in 47, as well as the Roswell crash. And then you just take it through, and it's a, it's a brilliant outline, and I appreciate you sending me a copy. It's, it's really well done. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's a number of things we wanted to achieve with the book. One was to show that whatever UFOs may be, they are international. So we have literally cases from around the world. Um, we didn't want an encyclopedia either, because imagine some high school uh, chap, you know, a, a huge great tome about this, this thick, you know, it's not, it's not, it's not going to happen. So it's just, it's just shy of 150 pages. It's got within the text, it's also got photographs and documents and illustrations. So we go through each decade, you know, starting in, in the 1940s. And at the, we take three cases from, from each decade. We start with Kenneth Arnold, point as any. And at the beginning of each chapter, I wanted, a, you know, a, a design. And that's where Ronald came in. And he pretty much had free, you know, free range. Is the first case of that chapter. That's the do the artwork to accompany it. And he did. Superb. And um, we, we don't pull any punches. Uh, you know, we mentioned a couple of, you know, there's a number of abduction cases, some well-known, some not so well-known. Um, right in the center of the book. I don't know about you, Brandon, with a book when I picked it up, was, you know, flick through it. Is there any pictures in it? Absolutely. Every time. Every time. So in this book, uh, right in the center is a UFO photo file. And it's got a little introduction to it, but it does say to the reader, make up your own off with a hoax on the first page. That was in the Project Blue Book files. But then I wrote to a number of colleagues around the world and said, look, I'm preparing this book, which you think are authentic. So they mentioned a couple of well-known ones, but I also got sent things from Russia you know, uh, and throughout Europe and Turkey that I'd, I'd never even seen myself. 
So we put them in there. So you've got a nice selection, uh, some good, some bad, some in between. Again, make up your own mind. Um, and there's a number of times when people would say, oh, I had my camera with me, but I never thought to use it, or, you know, and so on. So there's even a little sort of bit of information of what to do if you if you have your own UFO sighting. You know, most high school kids have, have a mobile phone. Use it. Take a picture. Yeah, we need more. We need better documentation for sure. Yeah. If there's somebody else standing nearby, draw note down the exact time and the date and the location, because that can be important. Yeah, and that that kind of acts, that kind of investigation came from your MUFON days, correct? And you you know that that's important to note all of these all of these things, so then they can be correlated because flaps happen quite a bit. Yeah, I mean it comes right back to my the UFO society. When I was well, with the British UFO Research Association, was I was their director of investigation. So uh, you know, I came across this kind of problem time after time. Uh, and of course, if you think there's a, a the case can be resolved, it, it can be very important to know the date, the time, and the location because they may be looking at something that has a, a conventional explanation. And then, on we round the book off with three theories that have been put forward to possibly explain the phenomenon. One is that you know the none of this earth. Uh, so that it could be some kind of secret military technology. And the third one, that it sometimes hasn't quite caught, caught up with yet. But we do say there's more than these. These are just an example. Delve and make up your own mind. Uh, and, and that's what it's all about. Yeah, and it gets people thinking because there are different schools of thought on this. And I love the fact that you don't you don't plant your flag anywhere, which I think is important with the phenomena. I mean, even like Jacques Vallée and even there at the end, uh, J. Allen Hynek, they, you can't plant your flag on this. You can't say it's nuts and bolts craft. It may be, but you can't 100% say that because different phenomena appear in different ways. And it's very interesting to see just the variety of types of explanations that could be out there. Yeah, I think what tends to happen if you say UFOs are X, you believe they are X, nothing wrong with that, but you tend to be unconsciously biased then for information. You only pick out the bits that suit your bias, your theory, and the rest, you kind of got blinkers on. Uh, and there's nothing wrong with that if that's the way you want to proceed, but I, I prefer not, not to do that and just keep keep my eyes on, on pretty much you know anything and everything. And um, we all know that, the, you know, the high school uh, students, they are the next generation of everything, you know, and maybe there's some of them that are wanting to get involved in UFO research. And, and of course, you, you can type in UFOs on Google and you'll get a zillion and one websites. doesn't mean that any of them are worth the salt. Well, here we have a publication that will help you from a, for a chap who's been involved for over 40 years. He's not telling you what to do. It's just a little step to, to it's a little hand up onto the first run of the ladder uh, and away you go. Because old dudes like me won't be around forever. You know, we'll, we'll have, I've tried to pack it in once before. And I, I failed miserably. So I've found in that I'll be involved in this subject until they put me in a pine box, you know? <laughs> well, we need you. And you've done some phenomenal work. I mean, you've, you've covered the gamut. You mentioned uh, Russia as well. And you did a book, um, wasn't it, with... Paul Stonehill? I've two, two books, yeah, I've done two books with Paul Stonehill. We did Russia's Roswell incident, and we did Russia's, uh, Russia's USO secrets, so underwater UFOs, for want of a better phrase. Uh, 
it's it's funny how that all came about. This is a way that was pre-internet days. In 1987, uh, there was an incident at a place called Voronezh in Russia. And it was still the Soviet Union at that point. News agency, TASS, T-A-S-S, TASS, sent out a press release saying that a UFO had landed in this field at Voronezh. There were these strange beings associated with it, very tall. Uh, It left some residue behind, and it was seen by many witnesses. And that, of course, made it into the Western media. I remember one uh, UK newspaper saying, you know, are you guys joking? Tass just said, we don't joke. You know, Eastern European way. So... Uh, I was interviewed by a paper in Russia, and it's, I'll try and pronounce it. It's called Isvestia. And, they, they, you know, I, I didn't think much of it. I was interviewed on the phone. They actually sent me a copy of the newspaper when it's published. All I could see is my name in it, you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and um, lo and behold, out of the blue, I used to live in a small town thing called Bath in West Yorkshire. Parcels started arriving. It just said, UFOs, Batley, England. That was it. But, you know, my local postman knew me anyway. We used to chat about it sometimes. And and these were letters from Soviet citizens. I was then sent books and, and it just kept coming. And I thought, well, what do I do with this? Now, I knew of my colleague, Paul Stonehill in the States. Paul uh, was originally from the Ukraine. And he literally escaped from the USSR. And I mean, I use that word correctly. And he, 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 he found himself in, in the US, US citizen now, which is his name. And Paul helped other people uh, get out of there. So he, Paul was on the KGB wanted list at one point. So I phoned, I phoned Paul. I wanted to get his phone. And I phoned him. And I said, oh, I said, I've got all this stuff from Russia. You know, I, I, I can't figured it out what what it says so i've got i've got it all so well you can't have it all these are handwritten letters a lot of them we don't know what they're saying so he says i'll tell you what send me them because he can read and write russian you know he speaks the language so i literally put them in a huge great box that's how paul and i met uh, and began working together because of these soviet researchers um, could speak English, so we, could, we were able to correspond. And then, of course, the Berlin Wall came down and the internet, so it made it much easier to, to bridge those those gaps that had been there before. And um, and, and that's how the two books came about. And, uh, you know, we have colleagues in, in various parts. Paul has more contacts than me, obviously, because he speaks the language. He can, you know. So we have written uh, articles for publication in Russia. Um We've had, we've had a book published in Russian as well. We managed to get that done. There's a few others um, Russian. It's just that the COVID pandemic has prevented that. But once once that's behind us, I'm sure we'll see them. Uh, you know, So there's not many people from the West managed to get one of their books in Russian, but but, but, but we did. So I'm, I'm very pleased with that. That's amazing. It's it's incredible, and I love the USO phenomena. I think that it's it's an important part of it uh, because it really transcends. And you'll even have people say that they go in and out of the water like nothing, like with no friction, no no problems transversing the two different environments. And as well as you, you'll have accounts of people saying they just fly into mountains. You know, the Mount Shasta uh, type of uh, UFO in 
uh, observations that they've had there. And, and it's interesting how they can just seem to transverse these different environments that are seemingly impossible uh, from the technology perspective that we understand it as, uh, which makes them even more mysterious. You know, it seems like the second you try and get a good handle on this thing, it, it one-ups you as far as what it's capable of doing. Part of the phenomenon has become, uh, how can I put it, much more relevant today than it, than it has been in the past. And that has enabled our, our, our book to be get published in, in several uh, different languages. And we're, we're very happy with that. Uh, and, and were it not for the pandemic, I think we might have, have seen it you know, elsewhere. But uh, we'll have to uh, make do for, for what it is at the moment. Yeah. Um, what... <clears throat> what do you think? Um, I'm going to switch gears on you just a little bit. So I, I'm curious about your thoughts on Roswell, um, because there's a lot of uh, it was just a weather balloon. And, you know, they put that press release out and then immediately redacted it. Uh, what What do you think happened in the Roswell case specifically, like your personal thoughts on it? Well, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm no expert on Roswell, but, I've, I, you know, I, I know a little bit about it. I've been to Roswell uh, and I, I lectured there in 2007. We also went out into the desert to make a little documentary. Um, certainly from, from my <clears throat> perspective, are still out of the way. You come out of Roswell on highway, whatever. I don't know what it's called. And there's nothing. And then he says, we, he says we, we, there's a sign and we turn left there. I mean, what's he talking about? Anyway, we missed our first turning. So he, he says, I knew we, when we come to this town, we, we'd missed it. And I mean, the town was a couple of houses and a gas station. Don't, don't ask me what it was called. So anyway, we went back on this road. We're actually heading for Socorro, New Mexico. And then you, you, there is literally a, uh, well, there was a pole at the side of the road each mile. So at 17 miles, you know, mile marker number 17, you turn left, and it was just a dirt road. And um, and on we went. And um, what puzzles me, there's a couple of things puzzles me about Roswell. Uh, we'll, we'll, for, for the sake of argument, we'll take the, the statement by many researchers that this was a UFO, it's a space vehicle from wherever, you know, that's crashed, dead occupants, uh, and it was covered up. Um, well, if it was shipped off to be studied, surely they'd have teams of all different aspects of science working on it in one form or another. And that would have generated a mountain of paperwork. But not one piece of that has ever been located. You know, it's the it's the what we'll call the, the physical documentary evidence about that aspect of Roswell that just bothers me. It, it should be there, uh, but it's not. And, and, and then, of course, there will be leaks. People talk, Brandon, um, probably the most secret project ever uh, up to 1947, you know, the, 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 the making of the atomic bomb. But even, and I, I mean, they built their own town in the desert to, to do that. But even then, secrets were leaked to, to the Soviets. So even something so secret as that, you know, still had leaks. And I'm, you know, it's just, you know, so I've got my, you're my friend. I'll tell you, you must tell anybody else. But of course, you go and do the exact same thing. And eventually, so it's, it's, it's the material evidence that, that bothers me. I also try and, I mean, it's difficult for us to try and put ourselves back in that era. We're only two, two years after the war. And I just think, too, it, it was President Truman at the time. 
I just think, why would you put a, a cover-up in place? Bearing in mind the cover-up, if we're led to believe it, went in place literally within a matter of hours. And it's been kept ever since. Surely used the propaganda behind this because the Cold War was just starting. He could have said, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, look what's happened. They chose America to come to first. Sadly, you know, something's gone wrong. Uh, but behind the scenes, you're going, not only have we got our nukes, guess what these guys had on board, you know? So the, the propaganda that you could have mustered uh, from that incident, were it a, a you know a flying saucer or a spaceship from another world, would have been enormous. So I, I but what I did a few years back, I I emailed all the main uh, Roswell researchers, all mentioning names, but people know who they are, and I asked them that very question: Why would there be a cover-up, a cosmic water? Not only why, how did you? Let's say you were the man in charge at the time, Brandon. How would you be able to recognize something? This is alien technology we're dealing with that scared you so much that you had to put a, 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 a lid on it straight away and keep that lid on ever since. And I, I, don't, I don't have an explanation that would fit the details because, I mean, just, just think of us as a species here on this planet. Intelligent species to us are the dolphins. But we can't communicate with them. We can teach them to jump up and catch a fish. We can't say, hello, Flip, you know, how are you getting on with the wife? Uh, yeah, whatever. So then put yourself in that position where a, a spaceship has just crashed from another world. How would you be able to identify it, figure out what was, where it come from? What would scare you so much? I, I, I you know, I, I don't, I don't know. I, I really don't know. Well, and if it was top secret craft that we were developing or somebody else was developing and it did crash there uh, and then a press release went out real quick, but then was redacted real quick, that may be part of the propaganda. That may be something that they were utilizing was even just the mysteriousness of the. Absolutely. And if Absolutely. it was ours and they wouldn't want us to talk about it, then of course they would say it was a flying disc from somewhere else um, that they didn't want. Because you have people running around everywhere. Uh, you know, looking in the wrong direction. When reality, you know exactly what it is. It's something, we'll say, we'll, we'll, we'll play it down a little bit, something a little bit naughty that you shouldn't have been doing. And we, we do know that, and the British military, to, to a degree, have done things both to the GIs and the general public in the past that was totally illegal, was against every human rights convention and, and act you can think of, but nonetheless, they did it. So, what you know, Nick, there's a, 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 an English guy who lives in the States. He's called Nick Redfern. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Nick actually lives in Arlington. I'm in North Texas, so he lives kind of down the road from me here. Yeah, well, he's written two books about Russell, and he believes he was a man-made device, probably linked to the, you know, uh, Operation Paperclip and, and the V2 rockets from Germany. But they were using, um, I think he says they were using Japanese prisoners of war. Yeah, yeah, there's a couple of thoughts on that, yeah. Yeah, in high altitude or even nuclear experiments that went drastically wrong, and of course, the Geneva Convention, hence... They they knew what it was, hence they they covered. But but again, having said that, you know the the U.S. has admitted 
to doing things with their GIs down the years since then. So right. the, the, there wouldn't be any reason, I don't think, to keep it secret for 70 plus years. I could understand them doing it for a for, for a amount of time, but you know, it's. I'm sorry, we made a mistake. We shouldn't have done our hands up. Um, so I don't know. So it's just those two things that that, that bother me. Plus the fact. Uh, this is another little story relating to Roswell about, I don't know, six years ago. I was contacted by a film company in the US, made real life movies for TV. So you would have a, a something amazing happen to you and they turn it into a, a movie. One of their clients was actually a private investigator, a, a woman, and they'd worked with her before. However, she'd passed away. And her son, um, he inherited her, you know, her estate. And he's going through his mom's files. And there is, again, a cardboard file. And it said Roswell on it. And in that file, some paperwork. Long story is he got in touch with this gentleman at the film company. On the videotape, it's an informal so it's not somebody sat down and you're firing questions. It's an elderly gentleman walking around his house. People in the background, one of which is this, you know, um, private investigator. And he was Deputy Sheriff Charles Forgus. And he'd been in the army during the Second World War. When he came out of the army, he went into the police force. But he wasn't in Roswell. He was at a place called Big Spring in Texas. And he claimed that in 1947, they were looking for a guy who had been cashing fake checks. And he'd been found and held in jail in Roswell. He said him and the, his sheriff made arrangements to drive to Roswell, pick up this prisoner and bring him back to bring in Texas. And he says on the way, we heard on the police radio about this thing that had crashed. The military were there. Uh, we were allowed to view it, but, you know, we weren't there that long before they, uh, they didn't threaten, as they said, but they kind of said, it's time you guys were gone. You shouldn't have been here in the first place. He says they saw the, the, the crashed UFO, some of the creatures. They then went back on their journey, picked up the prisoner, and that was it. Uh, so I have this video. I have this on on videotape. It's now being transferred to digital. Of course, you know the, the deputy is dead. So I asked again the, the main Roswell researchers about this. This, this kind of made me chuckle. So no, it doesn't fit with the Roswell scenario. Well, I'm thinking that changes depending on who's you, you speak to. When you go to Roswell, like I did, I bought a map. I said, okay, guys, so what we did, I, I worked with a colleague in America called Dr. Irina Scott. She's in Ohio, lovely lady. And then we published an article about it. It went into the, 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 the news media, went all over the place. First off, it was one of the late deputies' um, nephews contacted us. And, he, he, you know, he said, I can't confirm the story. All I can say is that, you know, my uncle was a, a very honest man. And he says, have you spoken to his son? Well, we didn't even know he had a son. So he gave us the contact number of his son, who um, Dr. Scott interviewed on the telephone. Back in the 1950s, uh, my father told me about it. 
he didn't know, he couldn't remember which year it was, but he said, oh, it was the 50s because we mo actually moved house. So it was a big thing happening to the whole family. And of course, Brandon, when you go back to the 1950s, Roswell was dead. The, you couldn't find it in any book or any newspaper or any TV show. So it's not something he'd seen on television. Um, so he kind of confirmed his, his father's story. Uh, and since then, we, we, we've dug up some information about the late Peter um, Forgus. He was who he said he was. I have his military records, things like I got some photographs of him. Um, there's even an, um, we even have a photograph of the sheriff's office from a few years earlier, 1937. It looks like it's just out of a cowboy film. Yeah. <laughs> it really does. Yeah. I, I imagine it didn't change that much down the year. So, you know, you make of it what you will. You know, we, sat on, we sat here with this information and nobody's really interested in it. Um, but what we, while we're talking about Roswell, everybody was at Roswell is now deceased. Right, right. There's some descendants, but yeah, no, nobody who was actually witnessed or were involved is gone. So that's another reason why they should give us the information. And and to your point to what the conflicting uh, story about Roswell, wasn't there, because there's been rumors that there were multiple crashes that day. It wasn't just one. And so that may confirm the other crash sites as well, but that it's all just hearsay. There was nothing really too there's, much. There's two, there's two sort of schools of thought. One is that there were two UFOs and somehow they collided. The other one is that it, it malfunctioned, whatever, exploded, and that debris was left on the Foster Ranch. But the actual main body of the vehicle crashed X amount of miles away. Yeah, so it depends on who you speak to. But I, I spoke to one of the main researchers, of course, is, is Kevin Randall. Kevin is formerly in the military. Uh, he was a helicopter pilot and uh, a best-selling uh, author on Roswell. And the movie that was made for HBO, simply called Roswell, was based on Kevin's book that he co-authored with Don Schmidt. What Kevin did, um, I believe, last year or over the last couple of years, he actually reviewed the evidence for Roswell being a, a vehicle from outer space. And um, we have a little podcast called Inside the Outer Limits, uh, myself and my colleague Chris Evers. So we interviewed Kevin about this. And he said, when, when you look at the, he says, the evidence is not as strong as I, I thought it was. So he talks about various witnesses that they, they've interviewed. And he says, every time when you think, ah, no, it's, it's just out of your grasp. And he said, it doesn't matter how many of these witnesses you interview or, or review their, their testimony. It's just, if that's it, you know, that's done it, that confirms it. So that's from one of the, you know, one of the main researchers himself who knows far more about the case than I will ever do. So I, I, it's like a cold, cold case review, isn't it? You know, look, at we've collected all this evidence. Now let's see if it's what we thought it was a couple of years back. And of course, sometimes it does confirm it. Uh, you will get other supporting on other occasions like this with, with Kevin. He thought, well, no, it's not strong as I originally thought. I just introducing UFOs. We do, you know, mention Roswell. We, you know, we really got to. Uh, and it, whichever way you want to look at it, Brandon, it's still, uh, I, I remember speaking to a 
And he said that um, Roswell is the Alamo of the extraterrestrial hypothesis. So if 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 the Alamo for else goes with it yeah that's a good <laughs> i like that <laughs> so but if fast and i would i would say to anyone listening it won't, probably won't be on this year but every year roswell has a festival and, and and a conference at the same time i was lucky enough to lecture there in 2007 10 for the festival it really is yeah and if they have it that would be great and yes definitely go check this out i think i think what i like about your books as well is you just kind of you put out the evidence and then it's it's something that you make people want to go investigate further and if they are curious about a particular subject then they can they can take your information as not only a wonderfully well-researched foundation and then expand from there and then go go on to do their own research which of course leads them down these great rabbit holes of not only what's happening but you know the different schools of thought on it and researching the different cases and how similar but how different some things are and i just love your approach on things again i i'm a big big fan of your work i have been for years yeah i mean what we're trying to illustrate here is that sometimes you'll go down the rabbit hole and find absolutely nothing but the next time you do and it may even be the same rabbit hole yes yes you you i, I call it shaking the, the the tree you shake the tree and see what falls out sometimes it's just leaves but every now and again there's some something interesting lands in your lap and um, on the alien autopsy film hoax. And that, that's what I used to meant. I used to say, I'm going to shake the alien autopsy tree and see what falls out of it. And it took me, yeah, so it took me 14 years um, to prove beyond any shadow of a doubt that the film was indeed a hoax. Um, for many years, I was suspecting it and proving it, and you know, are not the same thing. If I if I text someone to call, I can't expect he's done something because the judge will just turn around and say, "On your bike, you have to you have to prove it once you get there." Uh, and so you know, and um, so shake the tree every now and again, and you you you'll be surprised what what happens, uh, what falls out of it. It's it's amazing, and especially like you said, it, you go back to those rabbit holes. Sometimes there's nothing, but then you research the same thing, and then bam, there's something there, and then it's interesting, and that leads down to to other things as well. So on the alien autopsy film, why um, it I like that it took you 14 years because you didn't just go up oh, rubbish right away, and you really did the research and you put in the work with it. What was the la uh, the nail in the coffin for you as far as that video being um, disingenuous? Yeah, I mean, you know, we had our suspicions from day one. And uh, I won't go into the whole story. The man who was promoting it was a chap called Ray Santilli from his office in London. And when I first met Ray in his office uh, and he showed me the film, I asked him what his intentions were to do with it. And he said, we're just going to make our own little documentary and put it on video and sell it. That's it. And I thought, well, the only way we're really going to get to know behind this film is for it to be in the public domain. So just by chance, I was also Buford's conference organizer, and I had a conference organized. This was sort of uh, April time when I met Ray. I had, I had a, uh, 1995, I had a conference in Sheffield, which is 200 miles north of London, already set up of 1995 so I, I asked Ray I just said why well, show it at our conference and so long as you help me <clears throat> investigate it I said fine uh, and the little documentary he made I actually worked on that for him I wrote it um, it was narrated by a, a famous uh, English actor called Brian Blessed and um, 
it was only when the story leaked out and it leaked out, and it was out that then the media became involved. And of course, in August of 19, um, at our conference, showed it. The very next day, the film was shown on television. In the, U in the US, it was on the Fox network, Alien Autopsy, Fact or Fiction. So I sat back thinking, here we go. It won't be long now before somebody steps forward and says, that's me. I'm one of the actors, or I filmed it, or, you know, I provided the props, shot in my, whatever. Absolutely nothing, Brandon. Not a thing. It was it was the proverbial tum computer screen or the letterbox. I mean, nothing. It's Santilli kept saying, yeah, I'll, I'll provide some celluloid, you know, some 16 millimeter film for analysis, which he never did. So we thought, right, we'll take it to the, it's, it's supposedly an autopsy, right, we'll take it to the, the medical experts. A lot of them were fairly impressed by it, you know. Um, in the special effects field, to a man, they all said, I can make that. I said, okay. So the special effects industry is not a very big one. Who made it? Do, do you, uh, yeah, it's a simple, do you know who, who made it? Not a clue. Uh, we then looked at all the artifacts you can see on the screen, you know, the microphone, the telephone, the medical instruments. They were all circa 87. So nothing, you know, they weren't wearing a digital watch, for example. To do rightly or wrongly, it's in public. I, I supported Ray Santilli's stance that it was authentic. But behind closed doors, I was trying my damnedest to get to the bottom of it. And I, I told Ray this, and he just said, he just smiled and said, okay. So we chipped away and we chipped away, and I worked with various colleagues on and off. And eventually, um, many years down the line, a chap contacted me and he said, um, what had happened, I'd written a, an update about the alien autopsy film for a magazine here called UFO Magazine. It was a newsstand published and edited by Graham Birdsell, and it was on the front page. He said, I didn't think anybody was interested in it anymore. I said, yeah. He says, well, my friend made the dummies. Are you interested? Damn right, I'm, I'm interested. So we, we arranged to meet, and we met in Manchester, which is about, I don't know, 40 miles from where I live. He chose the time and the venue, and it was the, uh, a cafe. But this, the interesting thing about this cafe was all glass. So you could see all the way around it. I don't know, you know. So I met this chap called Simon, and he said that his friend made the dummies for Ray Santilli, and he was looking to cash in on it. He wanted to tell his story for television. Was there anybody interested? So, well, the only person I know is the man who made Alien Autopsy Fact or Fiction. The producer on that was a chap called uh, Bob Kiviat. Bob and I kept in touch down the years. So I said, here you go. I'll, here's Bob's details. Speak to him. So I'm, I'm, trying, to, and I'm trying to find out who, who his friend is, but he wasn't laying on. But he, I don't know whether he did it on purpose or not, but he let slip one of the projects his friend had worked on. You won't know it, I doubt, in the UK, but we have Channel 4. And back in the 1980s, a very successful TV show called Max Headroom. Oh, yeah. I remember Max Headroom. Yeah. So you, you remember the head of Max Headroom? Yes. This His guy, his friend, had made it. So I found we found out who it was. And eventually this chap was called John Humphreys found a special effects guys because John Humphreys wasn't a special effects man. He was a, 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 a trained sculptor. 
work had overlapped from time to time into film and television. So, so he started talking and then after a while, everything just stopped. And he had, a, he had a, a representative speak for him. He said, something's happened. He can't speak to you. But, but on signing off, John Humphrey said, you need to speak to Spiros. What is Spiros? Humphreys then went to work on a movie called Alien Autopsy. That's why he stopped talking. It was Santilli and his business partner, Gary Shufield. It's, it's an okay film. It's, it's not a word of truth in it, of course. So we, we move on. We're still getting nowhere. And then I, I worked with a colleague called Russell Callahan, and Russell produced a little magazine called UFO Data. The one who lives a few miles from me is Russ. And out of the blue, he got a phone call. And the guy said, I'm the man who made the So Russell said, it's not me you need to speak to. It's Philip. He says, what's your name? He says, my name's Spiros Malaris. Pong Spiros. So I phoned him up. And as he's talking, Brandon, it's like I've got a jigsaw in front of me and all the missing pieces are being put into place. It was, that's why on the front of the book, Roswell Alien Autopsy, it's done as a, it's done as a jigsaw puzzle. With, with bits missing. So unbeknown to Spiros, I was recording the conversation. So I played it back and said, can I, can I ring you back uh, and ask you some questions? He said, of course you can. So I listened to the recording and I'm writing down questions. As I said, am I, am I okay to record this? He says, yes, Philip. So then, uh, then eventually went to his home. He, he lives in the commuter belt outside of London. And I met his partner and her daughter, and he, he said, here. Yeah. He had his diaries from meeting, you know, from 1995, meeting with Santilla, blah, blah. He had original faxes from Kodak, where he got to know what the edge codes of the film should be. He was quite, he's quite a good artist himself, so he, he'd actually painted a storyboard about the film. And he gets all the paintings out. There must have been a dozen, 20, I, I don't know, uh, you know. Um, then he gets another box out. And in this box, he's all pictures of US. I said, what, what, what's that for? He said, what, well, what we were actually going to do, we were also planning to make a fake UFO crash. And I was going to build a two-dimensional military vehicle, but it would look 3D. You'd only see the back end of it. And he said, I was going to use this one registration number on it, and I'm going to put that reg on the military vehicle. So if you go and check it in the records, wherever, and he said the 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 UFO was going to, and he said I was going to make somebody up. He can also do, he, he he's a he's a he's an artist, he's a magician, um, he's a, an entrepreneur. He, he ran his own film studio. I mean, you name it. And he said we were actually going to make somebody up to look like President Truman, and he will memorize things because. And you'd be able to see his lips moving. There'd be no soundtrack. So if you could read his lips, he'd be telling you about the flying saucer crash. And he has a whole you know, bunch of other stuff there as well. So not only did he tell the story, he had the documentation to back it up as well. So he went public with this. His first um, present public presentation, this was at a conference we organized here, um, uh, and, um, you know, I've kept in touch with the medicine. He's, he's written his own book about it. And it was just published when the second lockdown came in. 
So the printers is shut. You know, the book printers, he can't, he can't get it printed. So we'll have to, I've seen little excerpts from it. I've even written the foreword for it. So I was about to ask. I'm sure you're involved. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. But it is, I've, I've read one chapter and it's a chapter that concerns Ray Santilli himself. And Spiros, what do you make of that chapter? He says, I, I think you've gone a bit easy on him. He says, no, what is Philip? But proving it's a different matter. So, so, but he said, everything I have mentioned in that chapter, if I'm challenged, I have the documentation and the proof to back it up. Yes, absolutely. Well, you did a fantastic job on that. What a, what a great investigative job you did, man. And that's really cool, putting all the pieces together. Uh, it's a great book. You guys need to check it out. Uh, all of your books are fantastic. Um, they're just, you, and you cover such a wide variety of the phenomenon that it's, it's something that's definitely piqued my interest. Um, so I wanted to ask you about Once Upon a Missing Time, and I'm really uh, really infatuated with the concept of missing time, how people can say, I saw a bright light and then six hours later I woke up. Um, well, Once Upon a Missing Time is actually a novel. Mm -hmm. So well, it's right. But it depicts the, the well, concept. Let me, let me tell you how it came time. about. Mm -hmm. My first book I ever wrote was called Without Consent, and that was published in 1994. There is a revised edition out now. And I wrote it with a journalist friend of mine by the name of Carl Nogatis. And without consent is all about abductions and missing time cases here in the UK, nowhere else. Cal visited a number of people and interviewed them. I literally drove from one end of the country. I went up to Scotland, to Wales, as far as far south as I could get and interviewed people for it. So 19, in 1994, without consent was, was published. I still have all the files of that here. And I had all this info in my head. And um, just as an exercise, I, I decided to write a novel. Never done one before, never done one since. And that's how Once Upon a Missing Time came about. It's a play on words. The story is fictional. It, it, it is actually based on real accounts. So what I've done from without consent is, is take you know, segment there from one case, segment there from another, and, and use them all. All the all the characters in it are all real people. All I've done is change their names. It was to try and paint the the alien abduction scenario in a more humane light. Because when you when you write something like without consent, and you go, I, I don't know about now, but when you go and interview somebody, say, right, what's your name? What were you doing that night? Tell me what you saw. Tell me what happened. Anything happened since, can I take a photograph? See you later. Thank you. But you didn't think to say, well, how did it affect you? You know, um, what about your family? What do they make of it? What about your employer, your husband? What, you know, so what we have is, is, a, is a couple uh, in, in, in Once Upon a Missing Time with a young daughter. Uh, the main character is a man. He's a school teacher. You know, his wife's a social worker. They live in a smallish semi-rural place and of course the news gets out about it so it deals with how society looks at the subject as well how it can affect you personally and um and of course they they sail off into the sunset thinking all is behind them when you get you know you get the cliffhanger at the end is it see i, I don't, don't want there will not be a sequel to it but i i you know i, I I had several ways of trying to end it, and I, but in the end, none of them made any sense. So, yes, it is a work of fiction, um, but it is based on factual accounts. 
And um, some of uh, you know some of the the people I met and interviewed left a long lasting impression on me, Brandon. Oh, bad, yeah. Mm. So they actually ended up in in the novel. They mm-hmm. don't know it, but they're in the novel, right? And you want to protect them. The anonymity is is important. Uh, but just the concept of uh, the whole abduction phenomena, and I love the the title "Without Consent" because that's exactly what it is. You're not willingly going. And not a lot of a, a lot of these accounts. It's not a positive experience, and you are being abducted. That's why it's called being abducted. Uh, it's it's without your consent. Nobody really is sitting there wishing to be abducted. Abducted, and the people that are, uh, maybe if they do find themselves abducted, may feel differently about it. It's not a pleasant experience for most people yeah but we, we club is, is the only club when no one nobody wants to be a member right <laughs> exactly <laughs> you know and what i what i did this is another thing that what i did afterwards i i wrote to a number of these individuals and i asked some of them at the time but i wrote to a number of them and i said what what do you think's behind the phenomena you've experienced it not you know i'm an outsider looking in said i've no idea philip that's, that's, that's why we came to you you know others thought yeah these are extraterrestrials from wherever a um, couple of them thought it was some kind of spiritual experience mm-hmm, mm-hmm. one young man again he blamed the Russians he, he, he knew it wasn't the Russians but it was just his way of dealing with it you know something nasty happened to him at the time the Russians were the bad guys therefore I'll say it was the Russians but he, he didn't what we also found Brandon was kind of curious and this was by accident. I call them side effects. The number of the abductees had um, an artistic awakening after the event. Yeah, for example, the young man I just mentioned, he was called David. Uh, he lived in a place called Pefele, which is on the, 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 the northwest coast of Wales. And he, he, was out of, he was unemployed at the time, but then he got a job in a, a local hotel. And he said, Philip, do not tell any of my friends. He's 18, 19 with long hair, denim jacket. Well, I was exactly the same at that age. But I've, I've now started writing spontaneous poetry. And it says, what pops into my head? I'll, I'll write it on a napkin in the hotel or on the palm of my hand. You know, uh, another lady by the name of Elsie Wilkinson, she became a spiritual healer. It was a direct result of, of her, you know, contact experience. And um, the, one of the main characters who made it into the novel is a chap called John Day. John, his wife, Sue, and their family had an encounter in the uh, late 1970s. It's a very long, um, in, with, in, in uh, Once Upon a Missing Time, you see the car drives into a green mist. That's from John's actual account. So I met John, and I said, okay, John, you know, I interviewed him got it on tape. I said, what, what, what lies behind this phenomena? You, you know, you've experienced it. You know, is it, is it nuts and bolts? You know, it says, Philip, he says, not only do I not have the words in the vocabulary, he says, we as a species don't have them. And he said, the, the, the only way I can explain it, he said, if you went to a film studio and there was a set built, you go up to that set and touch it, smell it, kick it, it's solid. Not real, is it? It's a charade. Make of that what you will. And I still don't, can't get my head around it even now, Brandon. And this is, you know, 20 plus years since, since I last spoke to John Day. Yeah, and it, 
it's almost like in some accounts it hijacks your consciousness or your or your ability to perceive reality, and and that's an interesting fact of it. It's you, maybe you go nowhere. Maybe they just project in your mind that this is what's going on, and and who knows what what lies behind the phenomena? Because yes, it could be nuts and bolts physical. It could appear that way uh, as something for us to be able to relate to in our physical reality. Uh, it could definitely be spiritual. It could be all psychosomatic. I mean, it, it, there's just so many possibilities, which makes the mystery even more mysterious. Yeah. Yeah, but what, what was kind of interesting, we, again, we jump forward in time. Last year, I published a book called Hyper Civilizations by a chap called Dr. Dan Farkas. Dan's a, um, in Romania. I'd, I'd earlier published his book, um, UFOs Over Romania. Fascinating book. But at the, right at the end, he, he puts his own little theory. So I said, about your theory, Dan, we need it in a book. It's not a huge, great tome, and it's 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 easy to understand. But what this is is, and it kind of reminded me a little bit of of what John Day said all those years before. He said, "Yes, we are being visited from beings from outer space. However, they are not a few thousand years in advance. They're not even twenty or thirty thousand years in advance. They are millions upon millions of years in advance of us." And they are right in front of us. And we are so far down on the galactic uh, ladder that we've them. He said, it's almost like you, you put a, a, a TV in an ant's nest. The ants will know it's there. They'll crawl all over it. The, you know, the, uh, you know the, and, and they might even try and attack it, you know. But never in a thousand years will they be able to make any sense out of it, what it is or where it's come from or what it's supposed to do. So on the evolutionary scale, on a, a galactic scale, we are the ants. And, and, and this species is right there in front of us, but we're just too dumb to recognize it. So little reminded me a little bit of what John said, you know, but us as a species not having the words in our vocabulary to be able to explain, you know, the nature and origin of these encounters. And again, not from a sales point of view, uh, but I would recommend hyper civilizations just for, a, for another look at the, the, the extraterrestrial hypothesis in a different way. Absolutely. I would recommend any of your books uh, in any way. Uh, they are all great glimpses of the phenomena in different in different genres, and you check a lot of major boxes on that. I think you, Bigfoot's the only thing you really haven't touched on, but I I like that. We'll come to that later this year. <laughs> I bet, yeah. I, I knew it was probably in the docket, yeah. But I love introducing <laughs> UFOs. I think it's a great title. I think it's a great breakdown, and it does plant that seed for people to kind of have a go-to personal first reference, especially as a young curiosity uh, researcher, uh, and to move forward, because we do need more folks like you. Uh, we do need people that are carrying on the traditions and asking the real questions about what is the phenomena, you know, what's going on here. And if nothing else, just well-documenting it, and you've got just such a practical take on it, and I just find that very valuable. So I'd recommend any of your books to anybody. Well, thank you, Brandon. And of course, you know, we've published it in a large format, so it's it stands out as well. Uh, but you can download it, you know, Kindle or to your mobile phone or whatever device. You've got sort of, you know, new and old versions of it, you know, with a traditional paperback book or ebook. Um, and, and the next generation are coming along behind us, whether we like it or not. Right. And, and, and staying with that theme for a while, when I began, uh, all of my research was in paper format and it's, it's still sat here right next to me. It's still in my garage. Um, one of the things colleagues of, of, of my era have been discussing is 
where does this stuff go when we're, when we're not here? So later in this year, well, I would have begun it now had it not been for the pandemic, is to look for a, um, a repository mm, mm-hmm. that, well, A, will look after the material, B, will scan it in, and C, make it publicly available. There is, there is a, 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 an organization in Sweden called the Archives for UFO Research who have the biggest collection of UFO material anywhere in the world. The only, the only problem is, uh, uh, you know, I've donated stuff to it, is it's in Sweden. Right. And it's, <laughs> it's almost like another seed vault, but for UFO knowledge. Yeah. So I would love to see a similar type of thing here in the UK. The friend of mine, John Hansen, John's an ex-police detective. John has literally been going around um, um, the heritage of, of, of UFO uh, files here in the UK. And I think at last count, he has something like ages of UFO sighting reports, you know, books, um, magazines, newspaper cuttings, all of which, had it not been for John, would probably have ended up in, in, in the trash. Yeah, it's almost like that art of Delshaw. Did you ever hear that story of uh, Charles A.A. Delshaw, uh, the Sonora Aero Club um, kind of technology? He he drew all these incredible drawings, and they actually just got thrown away. And somebody, uh, a guy named Fred Washington, just happened to be there. Dennis Crenshaw wrote a book on it, and it's absolutely fantastic. Uh, I'll I'll send you a link to it. It's it's a very interesting story of just how that came about. Um, but it's similar to that. Yeah, you don't you want this stuff to be. Um, repository and, and saved in some way so that they can be accessed and archived and put together. And maybe there's some missing links from different interpretations that can be all brought together with the keyword type of a search. And that would be a much more navigable way to, to search through the information. So, you know, that, that kind of ties in with introducing UFOs as well. It's it's for the next generation. We want to preserve this information for whoever's coming up, you know, behind us so they can access it. Because it's despite what the, the young kids think, it's not all online. It's not Internet. <laughs> no, there, there's some hard copy stuff that hadn't been scanned in yet, or they're just sitting in boxes in somebody's house and they don't know what to do with it. Uh, and that would be a great uh, utilization of that information. So I also wanted to ask you, have you had any personal UFO experiences or encounters? Well, a couple of what I would call sightings, nothing too spectacular. Um, first one was in 1981. I'd only been involved in the subject about a year. And... Um, there's an area in, in, in north of the, our county, in North Yorkshire, and we have the Yorkshire Dales National Park. And within there is, a, is the market town of Skipton. Just outside of the town of Skipton is a little village called Carlton. Above it is Moorland. So it, it's semi-rural. Um, when you go on to the moor, there is, there's, there's no you know, buildings or anything like that. It's mainly heather, uh, and they use it for... Um, grouse shooting so they you know, so a bit further on there's a little village down in the dip so there's not a lot to see it is quite boring moorland but for whatever reason brandon in the 1980s areas in and around here had a lot of sightings i was part of the yorkshire ufo society at that time and a lot of them made the, their way to us so what we would do we would we'd go out on a sky watch it was only about an hour an hour and a quarter's drive from where we lived my, my friend called me up one night because I didn't drive at the time. He says, do you fancy going to Carlton Moor tonight? Weather's good. So he picked me up and off we went. And we, we parked the car in a place we'd stood a hundred times before. 
you can see right across the moor there is nothing there. We're chatting away, you know, the football or whatever. And then right in the distance, there's a light appeared. Now we know there's no buildings there. There's no road. Uh, my, my, my pal looked at me. He was the driver. So we jumped in the car. His name was Graham. And Graham used to drive like a maniac at the best of times, Brand. So check off. It's pitch black. There is no streetlights in, in this location. And I'm looking... Now, the, a lot of the fields in this area are, are surrounded what we call dry stone walls. So they're made out of stone, but there's no cement holding them together. So I don't know whether there was a section where there was a, a gate, but I could see right down this little valley. There hanging in the sky was like a, a Ferris wheel of lights. It wasn't a little thing in the distance. It was, it was like that. You know, you couldn't miss it. It was right in your face. And, of course, Graham's driving at heaven knows what speed. And the ne next thing was gone. So I eventually got him to slow down. And, we, you know, we looked over the wall. We couldn't see anything. So we knew that there was, if we followed this road, we could actually circumnavigate the whole moor. We'd done it before. And we went down into this little village called Lothersdale and around. So absolutely nothing. Graham was as mad as hell because he's, he's like this, you know, driving. And he missed it. And uh, there is nothing there, Brandon. I mean, absolutely nothing. Um, so what it was, I don't know. Um, then jump forward in time. It was July the 23rd, 1984. I used to live in an area in West Yorkshire that was south of the city of Leeds. So I live on a hill here. There's a hill opposite. And the city of Leeds is in the valley below. Uh, I used to work in a factory onto the main road. I just finished working that night, just, just before 10 o'clock. And it was literally one road all the way home, almost straight. Um, about two miles, two, 200 miles. And it was a lovely summer's evening. As soon as I got out onto the main road, I see this big light in the sky. So I used to drive a Volkswagen Beetle at this time. They're not the fastest of cars, but I, I took my Beetle as fast as I could. And I knew at one point you actually go over the, the, the what you call the highway. We call the motorway. So I drove over the top of that, and there's a lay-by, a pulling place. And I got out, and, I, and I, it's still there. So in the car, went to where I live, and there's a, a big lay-by where the bus used to pull in, if you're catching the and I could, I could see right out to the hill on the other side. I could see all the city of Leeds lit up below me. To your right is a, a little hill, and the town called Middleton sits on this hill. And these two lights were hung right above Middleton. You didn't have to bend your neck like that. You just stood there, and you could see them. Well, like a pearly white, the right-hand side one was bigger than the left one. They were, I'm still there watching them, and there's cars going by. And then, poof, they were gone. Didn't go up, down, left or right. I jumped in my car. I only lived, you know, a few hundred yards down the road. Phoned my colleague, uh, Mark Birdsell, at the Yorkshire UFO Society. I grabbed my camera, my binoculars, went back out to that same location and stayed there for about an hour or more. Didn't see anything. As soon as I got to work the following day in the afternoon, um, colleagues at work who drove on a similar route said, Philip, you see that thing in the sky last night? Now, these are the same guys that have been taking the mickey out of me. Yeah. <laughs> you know, about my involvement in UFOs. And they're coming forward and saying, Philip, did you see that thing last night? 
And then, of course, you know, the phone calls started coming in and letters and so on. Lots of people saw it across the county that night. I, have, I suspect there may well be a rational explanation to it, but we simply couldn't find one. Um, so make of it what you will, Brandon. So you've had some first uh, encounters of first kind uh, sightings, but def- uh, thankfully nothing that's contacted or abducted you, because I hear that that is just not a good thing. So that's good. I don't think it's something you welcome. No, it's, it's, it's not something I've, uh, I've participated in, thankfully. Yeah, good. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay. Well, I also just kind of wanted to get your take on what you personally, and you don't have to plant your flag, uh, what you personally think uh, or you would like for the UFO phenomena to be. Um, do you have any kind of... Well, I think if we're all honest, we'd love it to be beings from another world. It's the most romantic theory out of all of them. It, it really is. I mean, when I first got involved, I was absolutely certain I didn't know anything about the subject, of course. I knew nothing. Uh, I'd read a few books and jumped in with both feet. Um, but as the years have gone by, you know, my, 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 um, my ideas have changed from time to time. And I think what we, when, you, when you study, it's multifaceted. It's, it's a beast with many heads. I agree. It's, it's not any way. It's like, it's, it's like different sides of the same coin. Um, some people didn't like this. Uh, a lot of ufologists prefer to pigeonhole it. There's UFOs, there's Bigfoot, there's the paranormal, there's religion. But in reality, when you when you study this subject, it, it is a mixture of all of those things. They are very interconnected. Uh, absolutely. Because you'll see an apparition, and what does it do? It'll go through a wall or it'll disappear. What do some abductees say the aliens do? They pull them straight through a closed window or a closed wall. They defy the laws of physics. Um, and again, when you speak to they don't think it's an alien. They think it's some kind of spiritual experience. One lady I interviewed in Manchester, when her incident happened, she was out the back with her daughter picking wild flowers during the day, beautiful day. She described her encounter as biblical. Wow. I know. Uh, and, uh, and you try and get your head around. She, you know, she just, described, well, I asked her, sorry, you know, uh, biblical. Well, boy, I wasn't expecting that. Was she religious you know? at all? Because maybe in some way, maybe the, the way you experience the phenomena is the way that you perceive the world anyway. It might be filtered through your understandings or expectations. I think she described it that way because it was so epic. Oh, okay. You no, know, okay. this was a, this was a, a biblic. Not not that it was a, a religious thing. Right, right, it, right. It's like you know, it's, it's like it's like when it rains. Sometimes it almost rains like like the biblical flood. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, that's what that's. I, I don't know. That's the way she described it, and um, we also look at science. Um, there is, a, there is a, a project in Norway called Project Hestal. It's a small valley in central Norway. It is surrounded by three mountains. It's very sparsely populated, a couple of hundred people. The local population starts seeing these lights down in the valley. And um, eventually, the UAF set up camp in the Hestal Valley in the winter, which can get down minus 20, 30. And they begged, stole, and borrowed a whole host of equipment, including radar and lasers, cameras. So they managed to capture the, the lights on on uh, on camera. The late Dr. Alan Hynek went there, I think it was in 1983, 84, 
Uh, and in introducing UFOs, we deal with Project Hestal and others uh, in the valley. Uh, I went there in the in the um, the late 80s. And I'll tell you a little story. I, I made friends with a chap called Odd Gunner Road. Um, he was part of UFO Norway, part of Project Hestal, and we've been friends ever since. And he took me, uh, and it was a good, I don't know, a long, it was a long drive. And, and we're getting close, and we're driving down this, this, this mountainous road, and at the side of the road, you can see these poles standing up. And I couldn't figure out what these poles were for, Brandon, so I had to ask him. He says, oh, that's for when we get, bear in mind, it's snow when we get serious snow, so we know where the road is. <laughs> oh, wow. That's just not something you're used to seeing. <laughs> and of course, I have a photograph of the signpost pointing to Hestalen, and all you can see is is the top of the post sticking out from the snow. Jeez. You know, uh, on the side, we had to stop for the call of nature. Uh-huh. And, and there was on this rock face uh, was the biggest icicles I've ever seen in my life. There must have been, you know, 15 feet long as thick as as thick as your leg and i thought i don't want to be standing on underneath here and calling nature one of these things <laughs> would have just impaled you you yeah, know yeah and it got down to about minus 10 when we were there but um didn't unfortunately didn't see the lights but i, I tried my damnedest so we, we move forward in time there's been scientific expeditions to, to the valley uh, it's they now station there 24 7 it's it's run by a chap called erling strand so you can log on to the website project hestalen uh, i can see all the photos and you know any webcam on it it takes a photograph they did manage to capture it on film so you can actually see this thing flying through there but these are these are not alien spaceships the strange lights which is is another arm of the UFO phenomena. Yeah, like the orbs and things like that, like the Foo Fighters they saw in the World War Two. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so they even have Erling teaches it in school and college there, and they have school trips there in the summer. Um, but it, it's uh, but of course using UFOs. So if you're of a scientific bent at high school, there you go. Science can. And when Heinick was there, he called it a UFO laboratory. Wow. And was this during, because this was, if this was in the 80s, that's, he'd already started SUFOS, right? Or KUFOS? Oh, already, yeah, absolutely. I think it was his last field trip before he actually died. Wow. And uh, he stayed with my friend. Uh, and this is a true story. When he was driving Heineck up to Hestalen, it got so cold that the car froze and came to a standstill. And when I went, you know, again, it was in the winter when we went, and the first thing we did is we pulled in at a local, what you call a gas station, to fill up with petrol. So he fills the car up, and then he opens all the doors. And I'm thinking, it's cold. What's he doing? Yeah. And he had like a little, a little tin can about this big with a sponge on it, and he's going around all the, the edges of the doors and and the trunk, as you call it. He went around that, and then he he gets in. I said, what, what are you doing? What are you doing that for? He says, well. I, it's antifreeze. I don't want the car doors to freeze. Oh my God. And, <laughs> and I'm thinking, where are, we, yeah. where are we going? You know, <laughs> if that's part of the pre-trip process. Yeah. <laughs> Damn. But, but, um, so, you know, science and people will mock ufology at times, sometimes rightly so, but we have to remember that most, if not, yeah, but most, if not 
all UFO researchers are amateurs. But here you have in Project Hestal and a full scientific project that has gone on from the early 1980s and is still continuing today. They've had teams of scientists trying to study it. And that is all began with the UFO groups of UFO Norway and UFO Sweden. Wow. That is incredible. I've, I've got to check this out. That sounds fascinating. Well, um, I actually uh, wanted to ask you, have you heard of the theory um, of that UFOs are possibly uh, humans from the future coming back in time machines? Because that would check the box of, uh, you know, super advanced technology. It would also check the yep. hominoid box, which is a very interesting thing to look at. There was a guy named uh, Dr. Michael P. Masters, and he wrote the book Identified Flying Objects. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with that. It's I've a seen it, yes. analytic approach. It's an academic approach to the the theory, and he he has a great hypothesis about it. It's it's honestly my favorite. If I I know the the romanticism of them coming from other worlds, which means of course there are other planets with life on them out there, and the interdimensional thing is interesting. Uh, but it's my favorite theory uh, because it's just yeah. so fascinating. Well, well, I published a, a book last year by Anne Tessman. Oh yeah, no doubt. Mm -hmm. uh, well, that's that's her theory. That I think what 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 we have to realize. Brandon, in, in, I don't know, maybe this last decade or two, our, our uh, has expanded an awful lot. Um, the latest estimate of the size of the universe, and this is the, I quote, the visible universe, is, I believe, 48 billion light years across. That's immense. It has an estimated 2 trillion galaxies within it, and of course, within those galaxies are countless zillions of stars and planets. I don't know what the next number up is from Chilean, if I'm honest. I think gazillion would work, or just gazillion. any ridiculous made-up number that we yeah. can't wrap our mind around, right? So what we found is that the universe is a lot bigger than, um, than you know we previously suspected. What that makes, of course, is the distance between galaxies and then stars and then planets has also expanded. But what it does, of course, it also raises the possibility of more extraterrestrial life existing out there. Yeah, the Drake equation. Yeah, but the travel in linear space, in other words, drive from A to B in a spaceship, in a, I don't know what it's powered by, it's, go, it, it's going to take you an awful long time. Yeah, it's impractical. Now, I, yeah. Now, a few years back, I interviewed a um, an American physicist. You may know him. He's, he's, he looks that is is Oriental in in heritage. He's called Professor Michio Kaku. Michio Kaku, absolutely. I've got a few of his uh, parallel worlds. He's he's very outspoken on the subject. Yeah. I well, he had a Japanese. book out. I think it was called Hyperspace. Uh -huh. Yeah, I've got it. And yeah. he was and he was doing a tour here to promote the book. And I managed to meet him in Manchester at his hotel and um, interview him. How great was that? Yeah, and he, he put it in Star Trek terminology so I could understand what he was talking about. But one of the aspects he was talking about, not necessarily to do with aliens or anything like that, but it was about time travel. Awesome. He said, the only thing that prevents us from traveling in time now is the fact we don't have a power source big enough. And he said, we're talking a power source at the moment. And he emphasized that. Right which is equal to our, our sun. But he also talked about other dimensions. Well, time travel, it was theoretically possible. Absolutely it is, yeah. 
Britain's most famous UFO event happened in December 1980. So we've just gone past the 40th anniversary of it. Happened at um, RAF Bentwaters and Woodbridge in Rendlesham Forest. One of the main witnesses to that, one of the main eyewitnesses is... Um, Sergeant uh, Jim Penniston. Yep. I've, uh, he's uh, going to come on and do a show with me. I've already talked to him. Jim believes that what they encountered that night was us from the future. Yeah. And because it was he got, a time machine. Didn't he get a download of ones and zeros? Um, well, he claims to have done. I mean, it's quite controversial, but yes, he, he said that. And I, I've told you, I have no, no reason to doubt they had some bizarre ex- encounter that night. But, you know, take on it is that it, it was humans from the future. They were having problems or whatever. I don't know. I don't know. Um, but I think the, 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 the sort of either time travel theory or the interdimensional theory, because Michio Kaku also explained that to me. He says, here's a piece of paper. Go from one end to one end. It takes you X. However, like Einstein has told us, we can, we can bend. So you bend it and points A and B are now touching the longer that far apart they're touching and pop, you go straight across. Which would appear as so, time travel. That's how it would appear. Exactly. Right. And time travel does exist because, for example, I think the fastest that humans have ever traveled is the astronauts that went to the moon. And they had an atomic clock on board. Of course, time on Earth had gone a millisecond or two faster right. than it did with the astronauts. Yes, yes. So it's a kind of time travel. So it, it does exist, but it, it, it's a plausible working hypothesis that is, is as, as equal as to all the other. Sure. Absolutely. But, you know, it's just that, you know, we expect beings from another world. Cause I think since man, man does, he's always thought, is there anybody else out there? Absolutely. Um, so, Beings from another world are not something that we've talked in 20th century. Our ancient ancestors did did speculate that as well. Yeah, like the Dogon tribe and everything like that. They they could identify star systems in Sirius that they, they couldn't possibly have seen. And so they either had more knowledge about it. And then you talk about the Sky Brothers and the Mayan cultures. I mean, a lot of people have talked about that. Ezekiel's wheel. Uh, I mean, there's, there's many uh, people in our ancient past that have talked about this kind of idea, not only a spiritual idea, a physical nuts and bolts type of interaction with extraterrestrial or God type beings. Uh, the Anunnaki is another one. Uh, it's, it's been speculated and it's been something that's been with us for a long time. Yeah. I'm, I mean, you know, I think it's fascinating. I think we, we take now that, that life elsewhere is, is, is a, you know, is a foregone conclusion. Doesn't necessarily mean it will be intelligent life. Right. right. Uh, and scientists will, say that there was probably life on Mars. It may even still be, but it is, we're talking bacterial life. Right, or because, subterranean. Yeah, there's evidence there that there was water, liquid water on Mars. And, and what we know from Earth is where you find water, you find life. Absolutely. So maybe maybe we'll have you go to, to Mars, Brandon, and solve uh, that puzzle. You know what? Um, I actually had on um, yesterday, so this uh, I haven't gotten a, a release uh, date for these episodes. It's, I had a guy named Kirk Carlton on, and he actually worked for Boeing on NASA projects for 40 years. Uh, and we did a two-part episode with him, and we were talking about that. And maybe Mars is, is in, the, in the cards. Uh, my brother was on the show with us as 
well. And he's a physics major, but he, he did a lot with astrophysics as well. And he actually applied to go to Mars on the Elon Musk's program. So we, we had a bit of a conversation about that, about uh, that actually the moon would probably be a, a lot more practical as far as then a jumping off point instead of going straight to Mars. Yeah, I think I think the only way we're going to solve that argument is when a man actually goes to Mars. I don't think they'll, because if it's a robot that does it, they'll be arguing still about it. I still, you know, they still do now about the was it the Viking landers in the seventies? At first, they they believed there was life there, and then they said no, it wasn't, and they still argue about that today. Um, so I think once once you get you know a living, breathing person on Mars, who can you know, think outside of the box, so to speak, uh, then then we'll have the answer. It won't be me, I'm afraid. I, I met uh, an astronaut called Timothy O'Leary. He sadly passed away, but Tim was one of the backup crew for the Apollo program. And he said what we were trained for actually was to go to Mars. But of course, they cancelled the Mars project and instead. And then many, many years later, they downgraded his status as an astronaut. Why was that? Because I've never been into space. I said, well, most astronauts don't make it into space. Right. I said, it's like if you're in the army, have you got to fight in a war to be called a soldier? Yeah, or like a firefighter. You haven't fought a fire. You could still do it. You know, there's still time. (laughs) Yeah. So, you know, he was part of, he he was trained for for the Mars mission. uh, and, And we had the space shuttle instead. Uh, and yes, if anybody wants to the, one of the reasons why, we, we had um, Buzz Aldrin lecture in the town years back, and I went to his lecture, and he told you all about what happened to him going to the moon, and, you know, a few certain things. Uh, he admitted he had a bit of a drink problem when he came back. Uh-huh. Um, but um, he took questions from the audience, and just as he was about to finish, he says, oh, and for those that don't believe we went to the moon, just ask the Russians. <laughs> See you later. <laughs> that's a that's a good point. Uh, checkmate, Buzz. Checkmate. Yeah, uh, yeah. And that's that's fascinating. And I do think once we get to Mars, uh, if we the cool part about that is if we found that it wasn't not only habitable but inhabited by maybe human-like creatures. That maybe if the planet. Um, you know, went tits up basically and it couldn't be habitable anymore that we all came here on earth. And I, lo- I love those kind of theories and those kind of thought experiments, especially with like the anomalies, like Richard C. Hoagland. Yeah, has found. It is, it is a theory because of we course. have found meteorites on the, on earth that are from Mars. Right. Right. So something's hit it and blown bits of rock off. And it's, again, it's another theory of how, you know, humans originated that were, there were actually all Martians. So it was bacteria from Mars that, you know, came here on a meteorite and went forth and multiplied. So we, we, as, as they say in the stone, we are stardust, or, you know, uh, all of us. And it's a great, of course, but it's, it's you know, so what? It's, it's, you know, you don't have to. Exactly. It's just fun. It's way more uh, fun to think about these kinds of things. But um, my friend, I think uh, we're going to wrap it up here. Did you have anything else that you wanted to talk about? Let the folks know where they can find you, please. Yeah, I mean, introducing UFOs is on Amazon, um, my my website, my blog. You can find it by just typing in flyingdiscpress.com, disc with a K. I'm on Facebook as well. I'm easy to find, Brandon. So any young people that are interested in this subject, you want to give them a, a helping hand, 
then you could do a lot worse than our book introducing UFOs. Please do. And you've done some great work with your flying press and uh, you've just got an incredible uh, list of books yourself. So you guys, please go check this out and definitely introducing UFOs. Uh, it'd be a great gift for anybody. Uh, it's also just a great conversation starter for a young person to get involved in this and any, any person at any age level. Uh, you guys go check this out. Philip Mantle, thank you so much, man. I really appreciate your time. It's been an honor, sir. Much. Thank you.